Well, good morning, everyone. We will be getting started now. <laughs> um, if you were in our prayer time uh, just a few minutes earlier, we prayed um, for the men of the church um, in terms of leadership and in terms of God giving them um, a fresh zeal and passion to to uh, do what He's called men to lead. And close to the very end of the meeting. Um, uh, Evan's prayer just was uh, really poignant to, to to that cause, and and I just I didn't plan on doing this, but I just wanted to, to at the same time encourage and bring honor to where honor is due. And and you know, Pastor Peter, I have good news and bad news. The good news is Pastor Peter is back next week, uh, so he's back on the saddle. You get your your um, much beloved Pastor Peter back teaching you school of the word. The bad news is you're stuck with this guy for this Sunday. Uh, but uh, this month we've had a, a, a group of men lead this class faithfully. They're both in this room. Uh, Andy Thaxton's back there. Uh, he led a couple of classes, and Mr. Frank Laurie is over here. And uh, both of these guys have a whole bunch to do on their regular Monday through Friday schedule. And on top of being family men and being leaders and being uh, um, lay folks, they just they spent hours preparing for their particular lesson. So I want to encourage them and say, brothers, thank you for helping us, for leading us. Um, we are grateful for um, what you guys have did, have done. Turn to your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. As is typically the case, uh, I have more to cover than what I have time for. Matthew chapter 21. We are, believe it or not, coming to the end of the Gospel of Matthew and... This Sunday, today, we begin um, what's typically called the Passion Week of Christ. Um, uh, We've been visiting with uh, Jesus' three-year ministry, miracles, um, His introduction, um, everything that's happened before um, this uh, chapter has taken about two and a half, three years to happen from this chapter to the end of uh, the book of Matthew, we're talking about a week. Um, um, resurrection and his ascension, there's an attached 40 days to that. But uh, from now to the end of the book, we're, we're, we're looking about a, a week of events. Seven days beginning with uh, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, um, traditionally called Palm, Palm Sunday. <clears throat> and we celebrated Palm Sunday recently, um, as Easter happened recently. Um, so just keep that in mind um, in the timeline as Pastor Peter takes over next week um, that a lot of the, th- the things that are, are going to be happening are happening uh, sequentially and in, in, in close proximity to each other. Things are just going to happen quickly. So I want to read this text, give you guys um, a little bit of background, a little bit of context of where we are. Uh, there's a lot in this text that, that I could take weeks in, in giving you some historical background, some technical background. What is the Passover? Uh, just a whole bunch of this other stuff that's important, uh, but we just don't have time for it. So, But I did want to give you a quick context. But before we do that, let's read this section. We're going to be going through um, the first half of Matthew 21, verses 1 through 17. 
So if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 21, verses 1 through 17, and read along with me. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and the follow him were, shout, were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This might have, must have been a sight to behold. The prophet Jesus of Nazareth entering into Jerusalem um, six days before the Passover. Crowds on one end, before him, crowds after him. Um, the word there, crowds, in um, uh, verse 8, most of the crowds... Um, in the Greek, that's the only time a different word for crowd is used. And the word that's used there means a really, really, really big crowd. There was a ton of people there. Everyone's excited. There's, there's energy, energy in the air to see this miracle worker, the, 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 this man who has manifested God's very glory and power, who has taught with an authority that no one had ever seen, who has casted out demons with an authority that no one has ever seen, who has, who has performed miracles with an authority that no one has ever seen, who has uh, um, raised people from the dead with an authority no one has ever seen. Um, everyone's excited. Everyone's just filled with anticipation. Um, this, 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 this religious rock star of a man is coming into this town and people are excited. So a few weeks before this event, Jesus had performed one of his most notable miracles, um, arguably the most amazing one of them all. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. So a week before this event, 
Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And and that miracle took place in a city called Bethany. Bethany was a little village uh, about two miles east of Jerusalem on the road to Jericho. That Jericho of of Joshua uh, in the Old Testament. The way Judea and the way much of that area of the world looks like now as it looked like back then, uh, Jerusalem was the primary hub city. Uh, and you had these cities around Jerusalem that, that functioned very much like, like, you know, here in New Orleans, there's New Orleans. I live in Kenner. Um, there's Metairie. But both of those cities are part of the greater New Orleans area. Well, J- Jerusalem had cities kind of like that, that, that were their own cities, constituted their own cities by themselves, but, but they, they were plugged into the greater city of Jerusalem. Their commerce was based with Jerusalem, religion was based in Jerusalem. Um, Bethany is the, the, the city that Jesus had performed the miracle of Lazarus, and at the end of chapter 21, uh, or I'm sorry, at the beginning, this other city, Bethphage. So you have these cities close by Jerusalem. Um, and, it, and enough time had gone, um, enough time had passed after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, that at this point the word had gone out. Um, so if you lived in Bethany and this man who people have claimed to be a prophet um, has come to your city and raised an individual from the dead, uh, guess how quickly that spread over to your little city and then to Bethphage, and then to Jericho, and then to Jerusalem. This happened rather quickly, right? I mean, of, of all the things that you would want to tell people about, um, you know, the, the Pelicans unfortunately lost their game uh, yesterday, second round of the playoffs against the, the Warriors. Much of New Orleans knows about that. Um, but can I suggest to you that a guy being raised from the dead would probably have been something to be communicated much more quickly and with much more eagerness and with much much more intentionality? Uh, some of you had no idea that the Pelicans were playing yesterday against the Golden State Warriors. Uh, but this is, an, this is something you would not have missed. Um, someone being raised from the dead in a city close to where you live, it's something you would not have been missed um, at all. So... Enough time has passed by. Uh, Jesus, um, um, around um, the, the, the uh, raising of Lazarus, weeks before that, Jesus had spent areas uh, in the area of Galilee. Um, so this would be like the north shore. Galilee would be on the north of where Jer- Jerusalem was. So, you know, he crossed uh, um, the causeway and went to Mandeville and performed some miracles then. And... Um, He's gathering a crowd around him. People are following him. He's, he's gaining a reputation. He's doing all this incredible stuff. Uh, this is about the time of the feeding of the 5,000. So p- people are, are, there's this eagerness about what Jesus is actually doing. Much has been said about who this guy is, but he has demonstrated himself in power and glory. So now people are witness to what he can do. So, At this point, he's headed to Jerusalem, and naturally, there's a large group of people following him. All throughout that text we read, you hear references to crowds, to a large crowd, to a crowd behind him, and to a crowd in front of him. So, um, two reasons for the largest of this crowd. One of them was obviously the energy around Jesus, the 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 the, just the wonder around uh, Jesus. 
I remember when the New Orleans Saints won the Super Bowl, um, and for some crazy reason I said, hey, I want to go to that uh, uh, welcoming parade, and uh, that was a bad idea, that was fun, but it was a bad idea, and there was just a whole bunch of people there eagerly anticipating the Saints to come in on, I think it was Endymion or something, I, I, I don't remember. So there's that type of energy around waiting for Jesus to come into Jerusalem. But there's another reason why the crowd is so large. There's another reason, there's something else happening around Jerusalem that um, it's important to to mention, uh, and that is Passover. Um, So I'm going to use a lot of New Orleans references to to, to give you guys context of what the city must have been like. So Passover to Jerusalem had a similar amount of of uh, uh, citywide uh, uh, energy and activity as Mardi Gras in New Orleans. Obviously, two different, uh, uh, way different uh, events. But you guys know what happens in Mardi Gras, right? The whole nation descends on this little town called New Orleans, right? Our population quadruples, quintuples that quickly. There's not a free hotel room anywhere Jerusalem was no different. When Passover came, when this, this, this significant religious festival for the Jews, commissioned all the way back in, in, in Exodus, uh, people descended on Jerusalem. Uh, so, there's, it's no coincidence, by the way, that Jesus' entry into Jerusalem uh, is timed to happen around the Passover. One of the commentaries I said, uh, I read... Uh, mentioned that there could have been as many as 2 million Jews in and around Jerusalem at that time. And uh, there's historical uh, uh, data to tell us, uh, I think it was Josephus, we, we, have, we have an account, a description of how many sacrifices took place in one calendar year at one Passover, and estimates about 250 to 260,000 sacrifices on one year on Passover in Jerusalem. So the city was, was just completely consumed with people. There's this energy in terms of Jesus coming, and there's this energy in terms of what the, what the Passover um, signifies and means. And people are celebrating the Passover. So if you remember your Bible, the Passover is a festival that, that, that serves to commemorate an event that happened all the way back in Exodus. As God leads the people of Israel out of Egypt, he did so through the calling of Moses through the challenge to Pharaoh, specifically with ten plagues. You remember? And the last of those plagues is God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, um, if you don't let my people go, the firstborn of every household is going to die. And by the way, that includes Israelites' firstborns as well. Unless you sacrifice a lamb and mark the doorposts of your door with its blood. When the angel of death comes down on the city of Egypt, he will pass over your house. So when the people of Israel leave Egypt and commemorates this, this festival, this, this, this mention of, of Passover is meant to draw their memory to that event. And in more ways than, than, than just God sparing them from death, but God sparing them from death, God showing himself powerful, but God also freeing them from oppression. So, they're, they're, as, as millennia happened, as, as, as hundreds of years took to, uh, happened after the Passover, the people of Israel would remember that God 
freed us from political oppression. That God took us out of the bonds of political oppression. In this case, it was Egypt. And in the current context, guess what? The Israelites find themselves under political oppression. In this case, it's the Romans. So, can you begin to see, can you begin to fill in the, 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 the blanks, the, connect the dots of what possibly the people could be ascribing Jesus to? What type of hopes people would be placing on Jesus? This, this, this man who has shown himself to be powerful is entering Jerusalem and people are hailing him as king. Where, does they, where, where do you think their mind went? They're pulling in from some of this Passover and as, as we'll see, they're not pulling from the right parts of that story. But a claim is made, a question is asked. Look at verse 10 in uh, chapter 21. It says, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is Jesus. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus' identity is secret no more. The time has come for Jesus to publicly proclaim what he has privately taught his disciples. The time has come for Jesus to tell everyone who he has come to be, who he was all along, and who he will be forever. This has not been always the case. If, if, you, if I take you back to earlier chapters in Matthew, Jesus has been telling people frequently to keep his identity a secret. He's been telling people, don't, 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 I'm going to do something, don't tell anyone. Uh, in Matthew chapter 9, after healing two blind men, Jesus instructs them not to tell anyone about it. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus heals a large number of people that came to him, and he orders them to not draw attention to himself. In Matthew chapter 16, as, as we get closer to the crucifixion of Christ, as we get closer to this uh, passion narrative, um, Jesus asked his disciple, who do people say I am? You guys rem- remember that encounter with the disciples? Peter confesses Christ. He says, you are the son of the living God. You are the Christ. And Jesus says, you're right, but don't tell anyone. And probably the most incredible example of this happens in Matthew 17. When Jesus gives a few of his disciples a glimpse of his divine glory by being transfigured in front of them. He takes them up to this mountain. Moses and Elijah appear before him. And, and Jesus kind of peels back some of that, 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 that terrestrial filter. And, and his glory invades um, their eyes. And they see the, the transfigured Christ. They, they see a glimpse of his divine glory. And what does he tell them to do? Tells them, don't tell anyone. Now, why? Why so much hush-hush? Why is Jesus so concerned about secrecy, up to this point at least, revolving his identity? Well, Jesus was never scared to secrecy. Um, It's not that he was avoiding his God-given mission of ushering the kingdom of God. Uh, He wasn't reluctant um, he wasn't like that, like that flawed hero in, in movies where he kind of saves people, but he does it kind of in ways that you wouldn't want them to do. No, he, he, 
He was waiting for the right time to publicly affirm his divine purpose and identity. And on this day, during this time, six days before this festival, the time is right. Notice the premeditated nature of this. Look at verse 2. Chapter 21, verse 2. He tells his disciples, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied. Jesus didn't have Google Maps back then. He didn't have Google Satellite to be able to you know, Google that address and see that there's actually a donkey there. It seems like this is part of something that he knew. Does it not? He tells them, you find a donkey, a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. Jesus is purposeful in what he's trying to accomplish and, he's, and what he's trying to communicate. This reads like there's a plan behind what Jesus is doing. There's intentionality behind what Jesus is doing. It's almost like this has been designed. Jesus is not reacting. He's not making things up as he goes. He didn't just get a spark of creativity and said, Ooh, I know it would be cool. I'm going to go confiscate that man's donkey and then ride into the city. No. There seems to be a premeditated, uh, dare I say it, prophetic plan in place. And that's exactly what verse um, 3 seems to suggest. Verse 3 says, If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. Well, what for? Jesus doesn't tell them what he needs a colt for, but he's going to show everyone what he needs the colt for. He, He knew exactly what he was doing. Jesus was being very careful, very methodic, very planned out in what he was trying to accomplish through this incredible act. But in all the fanfare and all the screaming and all the excitement, all the energy that must have uh, been present uh, around Jesus, some of it's described as a bunch of people there. Uh, there's just excitement there. It's just, just, just all, all that loudness. Um, there are two details um, that might have gone overlooked by people. So look at verse 5. Verse 5 communicates to us that Jesus is operating under the will of God the Father by fulfilling a prophecy about himself that the Holy Spirit had communicated to the prophet prophet Zechariah. So, um, Matthew 21 verse 5 reads, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Pause right there. Um, In in your Bible, the formatting of that text will look different. Um, it, it'll be kind of indented differently. Um, if you read, if you look at verse 4, you look at verse 6, um, if your Bible has columns, it it's, looks a certain way, but verse 5 looks different. It just looks like a different format. Uh, people who uh, uh, publish this Bible are helping us, uh, telling us this is content of the, New, of the Old Testament. This is a prophetic uh, a fulfillment of this prophecy. But it says, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. Behold, your king is coming to you. Your king. I spent a little bit of time telling you how much this is premeditated on Jesus' part. 
how much Jesus is trying to communicate something about who he is and what his plan is. And he does so by, by, by the Holy Spirit inspiring Matthew to record and to connect what's happening with the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9. And specifically, behold, your king is coming to you. Jesus is taking on a mantle of kingship now. And it is evident for everyone. Now, the interesting thing about it is, the people of Israel there like that first part. Behold, your king is coming to you. This would have been aware, they would have been aware of this, by the way. They would not have been ignorant to what's happening and it certainly wasn't unheard of a king uh, to enter a city on a donkey. Um, it actually would not have even been unheard of of a Jewish king to enter a city on a donkey. In First Kings chapter 1, David, the first true king of Israel after Saul, David, the first true righteous king of Israel, gives instructions to the priest to have Solomon, his son, ride on a donkey before he is anointed king. At the very end of David's uh, um, legacy as king, he, he commands that Solomon, his heir, his son, enter into the city as king riding on a donkey. But the riding on a donkey bit, we, we might read that as kind of a shameful thing to do, maybe a distasteful thing to do, maybe a, 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 you know, kind of a, a shame-type oriented thing to do. And, and they would have read it as a sign of humility. If they would have noticed it. They would have read it as a sign of humility if they would have actually noticed that he was riding on a donkey. This is what Jesus was trying to communicate to them as he rides into the city. That he is different from the type of king they would have expected of him. The king, in fact, has come to Jerusalem, but he has not come on a powerful war horse. He's come on a, hum, on a humble donkey. Why? Because he's not a war-making king. Isaiah tells us he's the prince of peace. And his adornment, what Jesus robes himself with as he processes into his coronation, is humility. That's the robe Jesus uses. Humility, meekness, lowliness, humbleness. As a matter of fact, it's so low and humble it goes unnoticed. Does it strike you as significant though? That at this moment, when Jesus declares himself king. If you notice, people are chanting that of him. I'll... I'll, I'll Develop that when, when we get there. But at no point Jesus tells people to stop calling him what they're calling him. At no point he welcomes it. He accepts what they're calling him. Does it strike you though that he does this in the most humble of ways? In 1838, 18-year-old Alexandrina Victoria became Queen of England. Queen Victoria, you might know her as. At her coronation, she was given a crown that was encrusted with giant rubies and giant sapphires surrounding a diamond of 309 carats. 
Ladies, look, if you're married, look at your wedding band. It's a lot bigger than that. We know a lot about kings and royalty here in New Orleans. Every year at Mardi Gras, I keep bringing up these Mardi Gras references. Different crews have kings and queens, right? And every year they're coronated. These lavish coronation balls are thrown to elect the king and queens of these crews. But here in this passage, Jesus, the great king, the co-creator of all that exists. John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1. Jesus participated in creating everything. The Bible tells us that through him and for him, everything was created. That king, that divine Sovereign, celestial ruler proclaims his kingship by decorating it with humility. This is how he wants to be known. This is the message he wants to communicate. One of the messages he wants to communicate to the people of Jerusalem. In the process, he replaces pageantry with modesty, he replaces displays of grandeur with meekness. He replaces pomp and circumstance with humbleness and lowliness. Such a striking difference between Jesus and the world. Such a striking difference between the kings of earth and King Jesus. You know, if it would have been me, maybe you're like me, maybe you're not like me. I probably spent a whole lot of time and money... I'm being ushered in as the king of Israel, being brought in as the king of Israel to take over and save people from those dirty Romans. I probably would have spent some time and money looking for the for the most beautiful white purebred Egyptian steed. I mean, just think of this massive, beautiful animal, huge horse. There's a lesson in here for us. And and, and We spend so much of our time, so much of our lives, posturing ourselves for attention. We spend so much of of, of our time uh, wanting to manipulate the other person that we're connecting with to view us a certain way. We're, We're concerned about our image. We're so concerned that we'd rather give them a different image than the one that actually exists. We want to be more exalted. We want to be more celebrated. We want more attention. We're concerned about giving people the right impression rather than the true impression of who we are. So the lesson is be more like Jesus. Make less of yourself. Philippians chapter 2 should be running through your mind right now. Humble yourself. Though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he did what? He emptied himself. Doing what? Taking on the form of a, of a servant. This is King Jesus we're talking about. Jesus has never stopped ruling or reigning. Jesus has never stopped being God. There's never been a moment in Jesus' existence where he ceased to be God. Equal to God the Father. But here he enters Jerusalem on a humble donkey. 
Matthew gives us some of this commentary in verse 4 about fulfilling prophecy. He talked about that. But the Gospel of John provides one more interesting detail. So the way John tells us the story, he introduces this, this quick detail. John 12, 6 says, The disciples did not understand these things. The disciples did not understand these things. So uh, Matthew 21, verse 4, Matthew records that after the fact. So after things have taken place and he's writing down these accounts, the Holy Spirit gives him that light bulb moment. Oh, this is what was happening. But at the time of it being happening, John's testimony is, we didn't get what was going on. It was just kind of cool seeing Jesus right on this donkey and people everywhere just kind of lauding him with praise. You know, I'm certain, I'm pretty certain that Jesus was a good teacher. Pastor Peter's a great teacher. Pastor Keith is a great teacher. But, but I love those two guys. But I'm pretty sure Jesus was a really good teacher. Right? I mean, after all, you know, the Bible was kind of God's idea, right? The Bible's being recorded about Him. Jesus tells us in Luke 24 that the prophets, the Psalms, the Old Testament speaks of Him. And, and that he, he, he revealed this to the disciples He encountered on the Emmaus Road. Three years of ministry with Jesus. I, you know, I, I can picture them sitting at a campfire uh, at the end of a long day. Uh, I can picture them walking from one place to the other. You know, they, they didn't get on airplanes. They didn't do trains. A lot of it was walking. There was a lot of dead time between getting from one place to the other. And how do you think they filled the, that dead time? They didn't pull out their iPhone. Um, they, they didn't have crossword puzzles back then. They probably talked. And I'm, I'm just guessing um, that Jesus probably taught them. Jesus probably spoke, communicated with them about who he was, his plans, refreshed lessons. We know that three times he tells them how the Son of Man is going to die. So he reiterated things. And it, it, it must have been pretty cool to be in a Sunday school class with Jesus. I mean, to have Jesus as your Bible study teacher, that would just be fan. Fantastic. But at the end of three years, they're struggling to understand what is going on. They don't get it. And the disciples are not the only ones who don't understand. Look at verses 8 and 9. Notice what the crowds are doing. They're spreading their cloaks on the road. They're cutting branches from trees. They're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is a word that, that just basically means save now. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's simultaneously a, 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 a word of praise and a demand. Do this now, but we're praising you because you can type of thing. So, to give you a modern context, the word hudat, the phrase hudat. Who dad is simultaneously a chant where we're supporting the New Orleans Saints, but we're also taunting other teams, right? It serves two meanings at the same time. This is what the word Hosanna kind of embodies. Simultaneously, it's a praise, but it's also a, can you do what the word means? Save now implies we know you can save, but go ahead and do it type of thing. They're shouting now. And, and, and specifically, they say, Hosanna to the son of David. This is first century Jew talk to Hosanna to the king. Save now. King, save us. 
king, you who are the descendant, the promised person who would sit on the throne of David. This Zechariah 9 prophecy, they get it. This is who they want the king. This is it. The king's before them. They see that. They're acknowledging him as king. So they're saying, save us. But even though they ascribe the right title to Jesus, by the way, the the, the, um, cloaks on the ground, just a... It's like rolling the red carpet. Just an act of of homage. Um, The palm branches became actually a a unique Jewish uh, way of of symbolizing fervent hope in the coming Messiah. So, no one here is confused about who Jesus is. No one here is confused about who they want Jesus to be. Everyone is recognized, we want this guy to be the Messiah. The question is, what type of Messiah? Therein lies the problem. And much of their praise, though, is, is, is pretty superficial. We've encountered some of this crowd before. In Matthew chapter 14, when Jesus performs the incredible miracle of the feeding of the 5,000... The Apostle John adds this extra detail in John chapter 6, verse 15. So, Matthew 14 records the feeding of the 5,000. John 6 records the same event. John gives us a little extra detail that's helpful. He says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew himself to the mountain. They want him to be king, but they want him to be their king. They didn't want him. They sounded like they did. They praised him, right? But they certainly didn't want him for who he was. And there's a quick lesson in here for us. We can become blind to the reality of who Jesus is as the result of who we want him to be. We might know things about Jesus, but we can approach him like you approach a buffet. I want the ribs. That's all I want. It's the lettuce and, you know, green stuff over here that rabbits eat. I don't want any of that. I just want this. And we can push out all this other content. Well, Jesus doesn't work that way. There's a fullness to his identity. And they don't seem to accept it. So we've encountered this crowd before, and I would make an argument that in some sense we're going to encounter this crowd again. In Matthew chapter 27, after Jesus has been betrayed by Judas, his life is now in the hands of the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. He's been captured, he's been tried by the Jews, they want to kill him, but they'd rather have the Romans do it, so they they throw Jesus over to Pilate, and, and they want him to, you know, Bring the order because it's the Passover. Because they don't want to get their hands dirty. You remember the story? The Romans had this really bizarre practice of pardoning a criminal. And um, so Pilate comes up with this idea. Hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put up Jesus and then find a really bad dude named Barabbas. And um, maybe Jesus can get scot-free, right? So um, this is Matthew 27, verse 17. Pilate motions the crowd. And the text reads, So when they had gathered, when the crowd had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you? Listen carefully. Barabbas 
Or, listen very carefully, Jesus, the Messiah. How did Pontius Pilate know that Jesus was called the Christ? Or Jesus was called the Messiah? How did he know that? Because that's what people were calling him. It's by the time Jesus enters Jerusalem to the time he's before Pilate, about six days have happened. There's not a whole lot of time that has happened. There's a huge crowd. Word has gotten out. Everyone knows who Jesus is. Everyone knows what Jesus has done before coming into Jerusalem, while he was at Jerusalem. This is fresh in everyone's mind. That's why I would argue that some of the people that to cry out, crucify, crucify, are the same people that were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, I can't guarantee that every single person who was here was also there. But it would make sense, right? This isn't another city. This takes place in the same city, around the same festival. So people are still probably there. Jesus' trial takes place just days after he entered Jerusalem. But it seems... That all the crowd that surmassed around him abandoned him. And there's two quick lessons here for us. The first is this. Hearing the teachings of Jesus is not the same as understanding Jesus' teachings. Now, Brother Andy taught last week. It's a Lot, it's very easy to understand Andy teach. He's a great teacher. Some of us might struggle with being understood. But hearing teaching is not the same thing as understanding teaching. Listening to sermons about Christ, listening to teachings about the Bible, even this teaching is not the same thing as understanding it. The way to know if you understand Jesus' teaching is to test your life by those teachings. That's how you know. If you've come to church for two years and you've sat under biblical teaching by a multitude of faithful, godly, biblically informed men and your life is no different the moment you walked in than two years after that, then more than likely you don't understand biblical teaching. Second quick lesson for us is an appearance of righteousness is not the same thing as being righteous. The Pharisees were experts at this. Absolute experts at this. If you were born in first century Judaism and you wanted to be good, you probably followed around a Pharisee and say, I want to be like that guy. Like, I want to be like that guy. They looked good. How does Jesus rebuke them? You guys are like whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside. But inside, you're death and decay and corruption. So the lesson for us is we can lift our hands in praise of Jesus on Sunday. We can be like the crowd and cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David. We can ascribe biblical titles to Christ. We can call Him what He has asked us to call Him. We can motion ourselves, we can bring Him praise and adoration on Sunday, but live our lives on Monday as if He wasn't crucified for our sins. An appearance of righteousness is not the same thing as being righteous. 
So, let's keep going. Like I said, there's just no way on earth. Um, Verses 12 and 13. So, the king enters. Everyone's in agreement that he's king. The, The Jewish people there have a desire for him to be a certain type of king. They want him to finally come and break the back of the Roman oppression, release them from Roman bondage, return Israel uh, to its former glory, uh, a, 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 a political power in the world scene, a military power in the world scene, uh, uh, certainly at the very least to not have a, 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 a secular, a pagan government over them. This is the hope that they have for Christ. So he enters Jerusalem humbly. They miss that. They don't care about that. It's like, oh yeah, whatever, so you're not riding a war horse, you're riding a colt, that's cool, but, but can you still go do what we want you to do? So, where would you think a king who's going to break his people from political oppression go to first? What's the, the, the first order of business? What's the first thing a, 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 a liberating king does? What does he do? Well, look at verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple. Wait, what? Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. I'm going to ask Pastor Peter to maybe spend some time working through some of this. There's just a whole lot there that's helpful. Um, But the people who hoped that he would be the Messiah would have expected him to come attack Fort Antonia, where the Roman army was was garrisoned. Or they might have expected him to attack the house of Pilate, the guy that eventually is going to um, condemn him to death by crucifixion. People would have expected him to come and attack the current government, right? That's not what he does. He doesn't attack the pagan, idolatrous, occupying Romans. Okay, so maybe go to their temples. Okay, maybe go to uh, uh, the altar of Zeus, or the temple of Aphrodite, or, or, or the temple of Poseidon, or, 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 but that's the Greek version, let's go to the uh, Roman version, so Jupiter, and, and Venus, and, and, and all these guys, go, go, you know, go destroy their false gods, that's what he does, right? No, he goes to the temple, the Jewish temple, the place of the worship of God, he attacks the temple. He attacks the heart of Judaism. He attacks the soul of the Jewish nation. His first order of business is to clean his house. He attacks the most respected, the most elevated, the most trusted of all people in the land. Those who ostensibly or should represent God. He attacks the most corrupt of all things in Jerusalem. Not the Roman government, but the Jewish religious system. That's what the king does. His first order of business is to wipe away corrupt religious practice. People would have hoped that Christ would have brought about freedom from the oppression and the occupation of Rome. This is what they wanted. And they believed Jesus could give this to him. He had shown miracle power over disease. That's what the miracles in the Bible and the New Testament are for. So they would have trusted that they could be physically taken care of, right? 
If, if this Messiah, Jesus, if he can heal people, that's a pretty big load off my mind, right? They had seen his display of miracle power over demons. So they had nothing to fear in terms of spiritual attack. This guy, Jesus would come everywhere and where there was a demon, the demons would tremble over him. Wow. So I have physical protection in terms of disease. I have spiritual protection in terms of spiritual disease, I guess. They had seen him manifest miracle power over matter itself. He created food for thousands of people multiple times. Jesus could feed them. So, that's a pretty good deal, right? If you met someone who could cure you of any disease, feed you with food out of nowhere, protect you from the attacks of Satan and demons, that's a pretty strong guy, right? That's somebody that you would want to follow. That's somebody that you would want to put in front of you and, in their case, use, not be led by They saw him as the ultimate liberator that would free them militarily, politically, socially, and economically. But instead, he goes to the temple. Um, Let me see, guys, what do I do with all this? He does a couple things. I just don't have time to get into them. Overturning of the tables of the money changers and the seats of people who sold the pigeons. Again, this is a religious festival of the Passover, so people would naturally be coming from all over the place to bring sacrifices unto God. And, and you know, if you're coming from a really, really, really far away place and you're bringing a pure lamb or a pure sacrifice to God, by the time you get to where you're going to sacrifice, it's probably not pure anymore. So it was a common practice for, for lambs to be raised, to be bought, to be sacrificed. I'll, I'll, I'll say it again. For lambs to be raised, to be bought, to be sacrificed. It's a pretty common thing. But what's happening here is that the, the, the temple complex was this huge complex. When, when, when you think of the temple, you probably think about a place like Lakeview Christian Center. The temple was many, 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 many more times larger than this entire facility. Think of the temple as uh, the French Quarter Market. I mean, just a really big place. There were certain um, d- uh, divisions in the temple... The first, not everyone could enter into the temple areas. So they designed, they created this one area called the area of the Gentiles. And that's where most people, Gentiles, if you're a Gentile, you could enter there. If you're a a woman as well. After that area, there's another area called the area of the Jews. So only Jews could enter that area. Deeper into the temple complex, you get to more holy, more more, more set set apart uh, parts of the temple. So all this money changing is taking place in that court of the Gentiles. This is where all that is happening. And the way that Jesus describes this is they're making it a den of robbers. I mean, imagine that. I told you earlier about two million people descended the city of Jerusalem. I told you earlier that there was estimates of one Passover, um, about 250,000 sacrifices. So think about the amount of people 
the amount of animals needed for that amount of people, the amount of sacrifices happening on a day-to-day basis, the amount of monetary transactions to make that happen. Jesus walks into the temple, and it's not a quiet, you know, uh, 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 um, erudite, you know, kind of, kind of monk-type atmosphere. This is a bazaar. This is a, 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 a marketplace in the temple. And one of the most interesting things about this is that by virtue of where it was, the court of the Gentiles, because there were so many people selling all this stuff, they had these really wicked practices. So, this, these money changers, okay? Let me, let me talk, talk, talk about them a little bit. The, the, the money changers. So people were coming outside of Jerusalem from other parts of the land that would have other types of currency, right? Well, you needed to use Jewish currency. So, you brought your lamb in, and, or you brought your money. So, it's, it's, it's kind of like when you travel internationally. If you change your, if you go to the bank and you say, Hey, I'm, trying, I'm going to Canada. Can you change my American dollars to Canadian dollars? The, the, the rate is, is whatever the rate is. But if you go to the airport and you do it there, what does the airport do? Does. They give you like a, like a fee, right? Like some sort of interest, right? Shame on them. Well, this is what the guys were doing. This is what the priests were doing. They were elevating these massive... It was a Ponzi scheme. People would come in with their sacrifice. And guess who determined if the sacrifice was, was holy or not? Blemish free or not? The priest. So you bring in your sacrifice. The priest would tell you, I'm sorry, but that one's not pure. So, just you're in luck. I've, I've got a... I've got a den of pure sacrifices over here, you know. But it's going to cost you. And that's what they did. They were skimming off the top, making these ridiculous margins on all these sacrifices. They were using God's temple as their own personal enrichment scheme. And this is what Jesus does. I would have loved to have been there. I would have loved to have seen the power Jesus employed. You know why I say that? Because there probably wasn't a dozen people there. There's probably thousands of people there. And wherever there's a lot of commerce like this, guess who hangs out? Like bad dudes, like shady dudes, you know, like, 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 like characters that you're like, okay, you stay on that side of the street, I'm going to come on this side of the street, and the closer you get to me, the more freaked out I'll get. This is the type of context that was taking place, and Scripture describes that Jesus just flipped tables over and... Pushed everyone out of there. What type of power must he have displayed for everyone to actually listen? None of the Gospels records that anyone resists him. None of the Gospels record that anyone put up a fight. What do you think that is? Because all of a sudden they had a, you know what, Jesus, you're right. Oh, we've been so bad. Mea culpa, we'll leave now. No. They saw a glimpse of King Jesus. And they were afraid. They saw what the demons saw. And they said, no, 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 no. And they'd seen this once before. The Gospel of John records, this is the second time, by the way, Jesus cleanses the temple. The Gospel of John records that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, John chapter 3 or 4, Jesus cleanses the temple. Three years pass and nothing's changed. It's a shame. 
So there's a lesson here for us. If the Lord were to come into this world today, in the here and now, if the events of, of the, 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 the Palm Sunday were, were to happen today, in today's time, that's a big if, just, to, just th- think with me. Jesus would not go to Washington and assault political powers. He would not go to the Ivy League universities and assault their ivory tower elitist mentality, teaching our kids all this trash. He would not go to Twitter and Facebook and assault the social justice crowds. He wouldn't assault society. He would go to the churches and he would make attack on the heretics and the hypocrites and the exploiters and the phonies and the fakes and he would call for true worship of his father. Verse 13, he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of thieves. As long as things are wrong in the temple, then everything else is in chaos. The measure of any society, it's a relationship to God. The measure of the Jewish people was their relationship to God. And you determine your relationship to God by how you approach Him. If you make God's house, His actual temple, a place of commerce, where you can cheat God's very people off of their money, then boy oh boy. You really don't have a relationship with God. Worship of the Father is the issue. True worship of the Father is always the issue. And this is one of the lessons we learn from that. I'm going to stop there because we've run out of time. Let me pray for us. And I'll see you downstairs. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder of who Christ is. The conquering King who gave us an example of humility showed us His power, called us to pursue and to have a zeal for the pure, proper worship of the Father. Guide our hearts now, Father, and our minds as we receive Your Word once again, as we join with the rest of the church family. Fill our hearts with, with, with a, a desire to sing boldly, O Lord, to be informed by Your truth, O Lord, to be changed by Your Word. Guide us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.